This is Clay T. White, director of UNLV's Oral History Research Center. Support for the Latinx Voices Unveil series is provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities, MGM Resorts International, the Commission for the Las Vegas Centennial, Mark and Marianne Haley, Envy Energy, and the Culinary Workers Union Local 226. UNLV's Oral History Research Center presents Latinx Voices Unveiled series. Today's episode is brought to you by the Latinx Voices of Southern Nevada Oral History Project, a UNLV Libraries initiative to record the marginalized voices of the Latinx community. This series is produced by the UNLV Rebel Media Group. ¿Qué onda, amigos y amigas? Me llamo Lawrence Pañuelos Benitez, and I will be your host for this episode of the Latinx Voices Unveiled. This is my first appearance on the podcast, so let me take a quick minute to introduce myself before we get started. I am a Las Vegas native, born and raised on the east side of the valley. I am a CCSD English teacher currently working on my master's in education. I joined the Latinx Voices Project as a graduate assistant because I believe that this project will become an essential tool for our community to change the narrative about ourselves and to show the rest of the world that we, Latinx community, have helped build and maintain this town since the beginning. With that being said, the title of today's episode is Herencia. The episode will focus on the traditions and celebrations practiced and inherited by the Latinx community and how these traditions evolved over time. Joining me in today's discussion are my fellow team members, Monte Hernandez and Elsa Lopez. ¿Cómo están? I'm great. Yeah, pretty good. Everyone had a good fourth? Yes. It's kind of funny. We're, we're talking about celebrations and, and things that we do as a, as a Latinx community, and we just had this big American holiday yesterday. So let's dive a little bit into that, right? Let's talk about how we as the Latinx community celebrate this big American holiday. Well, firstly, it's kind of conflicting. I mean, I celebrate 4th of July with my family, but it's never something that we plan. It's just some, it's almost like another excuse to come together and make a lot of food. Um, and also my youngest sister, she has her birthday on the 5th. So I'm kind of in that unique situation where we come together regardless so it's a lot of food. There are currently tamales at my house, which is awesome. And yesterday we uh, we all went to the UNLV parking lot to see the fireworks that are on the strip. And, I mean, the fireworks show last night was okay. But, yeah, it's nothing big. I mean, it's an excuse to just hang out and to make food. Right. I think I think that's how I see it, too, with my family. It's just it's another reason to get together, watch the fireworks. Monta? I feel like that was it, that was the only day where I actually felt like I was part of this country. Like that's really weird to say like I've grown up here, I was born here, but somehow fireworks are like a uniter for us. And so when we see them like we could all come together and like stare in awe to like these fireworks. But that was like the only day where like it was okay to like accept that like oh I'm American, that kind of stuff. But that was like the only day. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, and I don't know if this is true for, for your guys, but when I was going through my social yesterday, they were, of course, you saw your typical happy 4th of July, let's celebrate the country, you know, this is our day of independence. But I noticed a lot of my fellow Latinx people were posting things of feeling conflicted of, you know, how are we going to celebrate the independence of a country that sometimes makes us feel like they don't want us here. And so a lot of people, a lot of my friends decided, you know, I'm not celebrating this year, this year. I'm, I'm, instead of celebrating, I'm going to hold remembrance for what's going on to our community and the rest of the country. And I think that's a very powerful thing to do. So it's like in solidarity, we're not going to observe the 4th of July sort of thing? Right. That's what I saw a lot. So, oh, okay. so I mean, and I think that's a cool thing and a good segue into our episode where we can talk about how these traditions evolved, right? Because it, it goes from, yes, let's celebrate the 4th of July with fireworks. Let's have our grilling. But now with what's going on in the political climate, now it's kind of – we can see this slow evolution of – Maybe it's not a day for celebration, but maybe a day for at least the Latino community to reflect. Be reflect, critical. Mm -hmm. Be critical, yes. All right. So 4th of July, that's one of the big kind of communal celebrations. And let's before we get into our clips, let's talk a little bit more of traditions within our families. Mons, um, any traditions? Like the... The one that I remember most was like my, like what I would consider my normal. And then I realized that not everyone celebrates it this way was Thanksgiving. Like Thanksgiving, either we made Mexican food or something that was completely unrelated to, you know, your average turkey 
dinner and stuff because my family has never made a turkey themselves. Like, if we eat turkey for Thanksgiving, it's because a friend brought it over or because we went to another house or something like that. So we would make, like, tamales or, you know, pozole or something, like, extremely Mexican along with, like, side dishes and things like that. And then that would be, like, our Thanksgiving dinner. And then we would also say, like... We would say grace and everything, what we were thankful for for that year. So that was like my thing growing up. Like Thanksgiving, yeah, we celebrated Thanksgiving, but it was very Mexican in that sense. Uh, I actually want to touch on something that you mentioned once, uh, saying something that it was your normal. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah, like um, things that as a kid I didn't think were, you know, weird or foreign or anything like that. Like that was my normal, right? But then like as I got older, as I like, you know, became acquainted with you know more I guess you can say like white people and all of that uh like I realized that like my family was a little bit different we did we did the same things that were considered American but we did them in our own way right we adapted them and we made the best of it like based on what we knew right because no one like when you come to this country there's not one person that says, like, this is what it means to be American, right? Right. There's not this, like, you don't get handed this man, like, how to be American once you walk in. No, like, you kind of, like, you know, through, like, the media, through what you see in your community, through, you know, school, that kind of stuff. Like, oh, you know, this is what we do. Thanksgiving is American. Fourth of July is American. You know, like, Valentine's and, like, all these, like, days that are predominantly um, celebrated here in the United States, right? And so, like, your family just takes bits and pieces of what they understand. And so my mom knew that you had to make a big dinner and you had to give thanks, right, for, like, what you got that year. And so she she never knew of the turkey. And she knew there was turkeys in the store, but she's like, I don't know how to make one, so I'm just going to make another plate, right? And so then, like, every year we go around, like, it's not just one person saying grace it's like every year we go around and each person individually says like what they're thankful for what they look forward to for the next coming year that kind of stuff so i feel like that in itself is very american but like the actual food that we had wouldn't be american even though it is american because we are american celebrating it yes. in our own way it's valid because we're here and if america is as diverse as we like to think it is then i'd say that's valid and that's cool right and that you know what that's a theme that we're actually seeing in some of the interviews that we're doing we're seeing a lot of these people talk about their traditions that they would do at home and not realize that everyone did uh didn't do this until they got older until they got exposed to more people outside of the latino community uh so a good example of that is a uh, from the clip that we're about to hear from. This is from Judge Valoria Vega, and she's describing her family uh, Easter celebration and how she didn't realize that the way her family celebrated uh, Easter was just a little bit different from how mainstream America celebrated Easter. One of the things that um, I loved was Easter because we do the Easter egg hunts and stuff too. And my, my grandma and grandpa lived across the street from a park, so... We would we would um, do the Easter egg hunt in the park, um, and my mom's side of the family was not Hispanic, and that side of the family would bring ham, and my dad's side of the family that, that was um, Hispanic would always bring tamales. So I thought everybody had ham and tamales <laughs> on Easter Sunday until I was about in junior high. <laughs> from some of my fellow students that they didn't have ham and tamales on Easter Sunday. I felt like they were really deprived. <laughs> I, liked, I like what she said right at the end of that clip. She says, I feel like they were deprived when she says that the uh, rest of her classmates weren't having ham and tamales. And I think that is a very interesting viewpoint of having, instead of saying, I'm not the weird one, you're the weird one because you don't have tamales and ham, right? I Okay, when I saw this, or I'm sorry, when I listened to this, it reminded me of this cute little anecdote, and I want to know if any of you guys have experienced this too, but my parents did not teach me about Santa Claus, um, so <laughs> during Christmas time, I would go with them to uh, go shopping for presents, and I knew that they bought me the presents, like we're all there. When we put the presents underneath the tree, it wasn't signed like from Santa or anything. I knew that it was from my mom and dad. Um, but that's because our culture is different. You know, the kids in America, they fully believe in Santa Claus. And the thing is, I was that one really annoying kid that on the <laughs> playground, I was like, you're right. Santa's not real. Following that logic, 
Tooth Fairy is not real. But yeah. So actually, for myself, I relate to Judge Vega here because, and not so much because I have family that is not Latino, but my mother is Salvadorian and my dad's Mexican. And even though they're both Latino, they're very different countries and very different cultures. And and being a product of that, it, I didn't realize that I was getting two different culture experiences until I grew up and started meeting people who were either all Salvadorian or all completely Mexican. And so one of the things, like bringing it back to tamales, there were days where we would have Salvadorian tamales, which are wrapped in banana leaves instead of your corn husk, which, you know, more people who are more mainstream, that's how they might recognize tamales is is the one wrapped up in, in corn husk versus the banana ones. And then some days we'd have Mexican tamales because my dad being Mexican and my mom, you know, loving my dad would still make them, you know, stuff, tr- more traditional dishes. So I thought that was just, they were just tamales to me. Like they, there was never, these are Salvadorian tamales. These are Mexican tamales. They were just all tamales. They were all good. And it wasn't until I got older and they were like, no, not everyone grows up with both tamales. <laughs> All right, let's listen to business consultant and chairwoman of the Latin Chamber of Commerce, Maggie Arias-Petrel, talk about her life in Ecuador and her family's connection to NASA. So her story is really interesting. So growing up in Quito was a very beautiful childhood. Um, My mom um, was now a retired teacher. She was teacher in high school. Um, She actually had a PhD in education, and she was always involved with the youth, Um, her students and the all girls high school that she used to teach just adore her and she was always so busy with that and then my dad was a um, mechanical engineer for NASA NASA at that time back in the 70s had a big station in South America to track the um, shuttles that used to be in space at that time and the missions you know the especially the early missions you know like the first man on the moon and all of that because we are right on the equator, and there are certain points on the equator that are the tallest um, in the world that could actually track the 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 um, shuttles. So um, my dad was part of that, and he worked for NASA for 25 years. So um, it was a very happy childhood growing up um, back home, but in some some way, shape, or form, I was always linked to the United States because my my dad was working for NASA. <laughs> so, so I grew up meeting astronauts. I grew up, you know, getting the opportunity to um, have um, early childhood friends that were American. So what I really like about this clip is when people think of NASA, that is a completely like American idea, right? Like the Americans went to the moon. Sure, we didn't go to space first. Russians have that honor. But when we think of the space race and in that whole era with John F. Kennedy, it's all very American. And in the media currently, last few years, we've seen a lot of stories uh, put out by Hollywood about things that went on in NASA. You know, we had... uh, we had Hidden Figures, which was a fantastic movie with a, with that focused on the African-American women that helped with the cal- math calculations. Uh, we also had, I think it was First Man, I think it was with um, Ryan, Ryan Gosling being the lead in, in his journey. But they're all very American movies. And it, you can keep going back. There's Apollo 11 with Tom Hanks. I mean, every NASA movie that I think about um, is all very centered around America and what they did. What they don't talk about, and this what this interview does really good, is shed that light that there's Latinos also working in NASA. Her dad was a mechanical engineer working for NASA, waking up the astronauts um, for telling them that they were passing the equator. So um, she grew up in a very um, like in a very American atmosphere in the middle middle of Ecuador, and that's crazy. And so like I like. I, I I wanted to include this clip in in this episode because it sheds light on how one way or another, we're, Latin America has always been connected to the U.S. in some way, shape, or form. And what's more American than NASA, right? Right. She's connected to the probably like the most American, you know, voyage or institute, something institute. like because I can't think of any negativity that we can say about NASA. NASA is one of those few American institutions where everyone's kind of like, it's severely underfunded at the moment, but yeah. like everyone's <laughs> proud of it. Right? Everybody's like, proud of like NASA, like, oh, wow, NASA, science, right? Science, like yes. the like the technology that they come up with and all the medical innovations and, you know, um, 
breakthrough technologies that they've done in the past 60 years, right? Crazy. It's crazy how much NASA has contributed to humanity as a whole, right? But the reason they mm -hmm. are able to do such things is because their team is so immense. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, I'm glad that you included that clip because you're right. We have movies like Hidden Figures that give us one perspective, but imagine all the other perspectives that we have yet to hear. Before we move on to the next clip, I really want to give a shout out because Speaking of NASA and Latinos, I did a quick Google search, and I just want to name a couple of cool things that I found, or actually one. But the first Latina in space was – it's a, in Google, it says Ellen Ochoa. I'm going to take a, a guess in the dark and say her – she goes by Elena. American, Americanized, it happens a lot. But she was the first Latina in space uh, in 1991. 1991? So, yes. Okay. So, okay. So the next clip we're going to listen to is from Freddy, Freddy Chavez. He is the director of the Bol Bolivian Carnival, uh, and he, he did it back home. But he, when he immigrated to Las Vegas, he brought that carnival with you. And that was his way of staying in touch with his culture, even though now he lives in the States. Uh, before we get into the clip, though, I want to ask you guys, and, and I'll start with you, Elsa. How does your family stay in touch with their culture, even though they've been living here in the States? Um... Let's see. Definitely the food. We talk about that a lot. Um, music, speaking the language at home. We communicate a lot with my family back in Mexico. Both my mom does and my dad. They talk on the phone all the time. We keep up with the current events. Luckily, we have um, news stations here that give us, I mean, keep us up to date with what's going on over there. I would say, like, for my family, it's, like, cheering on the Mexican soccer team. <laughs> oh, yeah. there's that, too. And, like, that's, like, a religion in itself. Like, so if you guys don't know this, the Mexican soccer team is called El Tri. And so all Mexican, Mexican-Americans, they root for El Tri like it's a religious, like, entity, right? And so, like, that's a way, like, cheering on Mexico in a, a competitive competition, stuff like that. And if I'm not mistaken, El Tri, the, the Mexican national team, is actually more popular in the state than the actual U.S. Uh, men's team. Um, and that's because of all generations of Mexican-Americans that we have here. We feel more connected to that team than we do the American team. Well, I mean, the U.S. doesn't have a soccer culture like Mexico does, so we bring that over, and that's something that we celebrate here and the tradition that we pass on to, like, our kids and to our uh, younger generations. Like, okay, you might live in the States, and you might, you know be born here and all your family's here but at the end of the day like when it comes to football or soccer you're gonna cheer for the motherland <laughs> because you know they, they're actually good you know right yep. and then my experience with my family keeping in touch is, is similar to elsa's where you know we watch the news um here especially in the southwest it's uh, a lot of the spanish networks bring you news from you know the Latin American countries. And if you're lucky, I know like currently my parents' uh, cable package offers them a Salvadorian uh, TV network. So my mom's actually able to watch news and programming from El Salvador and stay in touch with it. But with the advent of social media and just tech becoming more prevalent, like I remember one of my like things that my mom would send me out to do was to go buy phone cards. <laughs> I would go to the corner market and buy phone cards so mm -hmm. my, my mom could call home. Uh, we don't do that no more because my mom can use WhatsApp, Facebook, whatever, or WhatsApp, sorry. WhatsApp, What's yeah. WhatsApp. <laughs> um, to stay in touch. So, you know, through communication, you know, they've always been keeping in touch with family back home, the food, traditions. Uh, and another Photos. Photos. Uh, relaying stories. Uh, that's a that was a big thing in, in my family. Uh, my mom is a refugee of the Salvadorian Civil War, and I grew up hearing stories of what happened in Salvador and why she had to leave the country. And yes, I did not physically live through that experience, but because of the stories that my mom told, I mean, I I was a fifth grader with knowledge of a foreign civil war, <laughs> and I don't know how many fifth graders you know know that right most fifth graders are still worried about figuring out their multiplications versus me i was knowledgeable about foreign affairs because of my parents mm -hmm. and how the u.s responds to it too right exactly right. okay so all of that is to say or to come back to this clip of freddie who when he was growing up in bolivia was so passionate about this carnival that they uh, hold it or held in his town that when he came to the States, he felt like he needed to bring it now and bring it with him. And it's actually now 
uh, I believe its official name is a Latino uh, festival. I got I got to double check, but it's it's a thing now. It's a traditional thing. It's a Las Vegas tradition now, and he helped build it. So we're gonna we're gonna play this clip. Um, I will let you guys know this clip is in Spanish and the reason for that is we want we don't want to narrate we don't want to take away from the original person's voice so this clip is going to be in Spanish at the end of it though we'll summarize what was said El carnaval en sí es una es una fiesta religiosa pagana ya eh, nació pues me imagino que viene de España ¿no? que fueron los que llegaron a nuestros países ¿no? y trajeron esa esas tradiciones de allá pero con el tiempo pues agarró lo que es la cultura de cada región, de cada país, ¿no? Y eh, usualmente el carnaval se hace eh, en, para la Semana Santa, antes de la cuaresma, ¿ya? Entonces eh, se viene y se, se dice que la, el, el carnaval viene del nombre carne, carnología, ¿por qué? Porque la gente, especialmente los esclavos y todo eso, eh, era la forma de desahogarse y de liberarse de la esclavitud y de tantas cosas. Entonces, era tres días de carnaval que ellos podían pecar, podían hacer de todo, ¿no? Beber, de todo, ¿no? Eh, hasta con su carne, ¿no? Entonces, para el miércoles de ceniza, ya entrar sanamente otra vez a seguir su vida normal y este y seguir los mandatos de Dios y todas esas cosas. O sea, por eso se decía que el carnaval era algo del diablo, porque era una fiesta pagana, ¿no? Pero con el pasar de los años, el carnaval fue cambiando eso. Y hoy se ha convertido en una exposición cultural con estilo carnaval. ¿Por qué? Porque todavía trae glamour, fantasía, brillos, todo. Ustedes han visto las, las fotografías, las reinas con... Tanto glamour y todo. Los únicos carnavales que ahorita son conocidos mundialmente todavía con esa trayección eh, pagana carnavalesca es el carnaval de Río de Janeiro en Brasil y el carnaval de New Orleans en Estados Unidos. Entonces, esos son los que más ahorita todavía siguen las tradiciones antiguas. Los restos de carnavales como México, Argentina, Colombia, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, Venezuela, todo eso, muestran ya un poco más cultural, mostrando las raíces autóctonas, tradicionales y todo. Lo que está, se está evitando es de, de que no se muera aquellas tradiciones que tenían nuestros antepasados. ¿ya? Por eso es de que yo, una porque me gusta y otra porque dije, estamos aquí en Estados Unidos, muchos niños, mucha juventud, a veces por la televisión me escuchan pasar carnaval un, un minuto, un dos, dos segundos, pero no saben lo que es eso, la, la pasión, la alegría, la fantasía, el glamour, la felicidad que trae eso. Entonces yo decidí, eh, dije que más estamos en Las Vegas y que no hay un carnaval en Las Vegas, a Las Vegas le falta algo para estar completa, ¿no? <risa> y casi nació el, el, el carnaval. Ok, so to summarize a little bit of what Ferry is speaking in that uh, clip, he starts telling you about the origin of the car car Carnival Festival. Uh, so he t gives us a little bit of history. He tells us that uh, these carnivals were born out of pagan holidays, pagan traditions, and it was a way for indigenous people to kind of celebrate some of their, their roots, kind of have this big festival, and it, and it kind of happened before it. It's, it aligns with the Catholic holidays where you have this big festive festival, everyone drinks, everyone eats, you know, parties all night. And then the next day they go on as normal, right? The normal, they go back to their normal traditions, normal work, kind of it's your one big outlet for fun. And then everyone goes back. Uh, he says, though, as time went on, these carnivals evolved again, right? And they kind of got away from that big big party feel to them. Uh, he says the only ones that are still a big party are actually the ones that are still famous, which would be the Carnival of Rio de, uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil and uh, the New Orleans Mardi Gras Festival. Those are the two big famous ones, and they're the ones who have stayed close to what the carnivals were originally when they were first started. The carnivals in the rest of the countries, uh, and he names a few, are Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, and of course his own native Bolivia. These carnival festivals evolved into becoming more of tradition of not necessarily a big party but to for the community to remember its roots to our uh, traditions of the past yeah what i really liked what he mentioned is like not 
para que no se uh, mueran aquellas tradiciones que tenían nuestros antepasados. So, like, for those traditions that our ancestors had, so they won't die. Right. Those traditions won't die. And I feel like that's very relevant to today and, like, our experience. Like, we don't want our, our heritage to die. But in particular, like, one, if not the biggest example, is um, Dia de los Muertos, right? And so that one the Aztecs and the Mesoamericans had celebrated that for hundreds of years and they actually did it in August, right? Like this whole day to celebrate the dead. But then along came the Spanish and they wanted them to like convert and the indigenous were like, well, we don't want your religion. Like we don't understand like what does your religion have to do with us, right? And so like the monks here in, you know, the uh, what is now Mexico, they're like, oh, If we really want them to convert, we have to take their traditions and apply them to Catholicism. So that's why we get our um, November 1st and 2nd, which is traditionally the Catholic holiday of like the day of All Saints, right? Like All Saints Day. And so they mixed it together. So in Mexico, they kind of celebrate pagan Catholicism because it's a mixture of what the indigenous celebrated along with Catholicism. And they did that so that they would appeal, like Catholicism would appeal to the indigenous um, traditions and so you have many aspects that are still very um, indigenous like the flower the marigold flower right that's an indigenous flower and it symbolizes light and life and all these things right and it's very well rooted in the day of the dead but then you also have like christ and like the holy water and stuff like that that it's still very you know catholic And so that's like the mixture of, of, of cultures, but also like so that our ancestors' um, traditions won't die. And Freddie did mention that, that this started because of Spain and the conquistadores. They brought the tradition with them, but then as time went on, it, each region, which eventually became the separate countries of Latino America, gave it their own flavor. And then Freddie, at the end, he says when he came here, he couldn't believe Las Vegas didn't have a carnival like How is it this big party town, this big fest of town doesn't have its own carnival? And, and that's where he felt that was his role to fill in our community by bringing that uh, carnival to town. Um, so now I want to go into this next clip. This next clip is from Kelly Benavides. Uh, she is the community li liaison for uh, North Las Vegas and Commissioner Weekly. She talks about how, and her clip is really good at comparing how the traditions from Mexico are Like, if you go to Mexico on Christmas, that experience is very, very different from if you're celebrating uh, Christmas here in the States, even though you're Mexican-American. You know, right? There's this idea in mainstream America that uh, Latinidad is just everything's the same, right? You know, you can – Colombians, uh, Salvadorians, de Panama, it's all the same experience. But uh, Kelly's testimony or interview illustrates very well that even – If you're Mexican and you're going to Mexico to celebrate the same holiday, you're going to have a very different experience than you are here at the States. So without that being said, we're going to go ahead and play Kelly's uh, interview. In the holidays over there is so important, you know, the, the Christmas. I think maybe that's why I'm so disconnected with Christmas here because in Mexico, it wasn't about like Santa and the toys. It was about like the experience of you know, the Virgin Mary coming and doing posadas where you go from door to door and the kids would dress up. And, you know, it's a totally different experience. It's it's more spiritual, I guess. And it definitely connected me. Like those two years connected me to my culture, my family. Can you tell me more about the posadas? So I wanted, I, I, I'm really torn because I really want to take my son to, for him to experience it, but it's always during school time. So it's not like I can pack him up and, you know, take him. But um, so in the posadas, like every neighborhood gets together and they, it's like every day a neighborhood gets picked and they do a posada where they dress up a little girl as the Virgin Mary. They dress up a little boy as Joseph and they get a donkey and they go from house to house singing carols. And so you sing carols and you're asking for them to open the doors to their home. So, of course, the last house is the one that opens the door to the to the kids, the carolers. And there's always a, you know, a, a party and they always end up with the hot chocolate and the pan dulce. And so little things like that, like the kids don't get the big gifts and the, you know, um, 
game systems and all that. Like, they don't care about that. It's about the fun of experiencing of the meaning of Christmas, which, you know, I try to instill that, but it's so hard here because here it is so commercialized. You know, everything is about, you know, the gifts and what you're going to get. You know, it's just a totally different experience there. I really relate to this this clip. Yeah, um, like with me, for a long time, my parents couldn't afford going to Mexico. So there was a huge disconnect like between me being six until like my adult life. So like most of my life. <laughs> and so it wasn't until I was 18 that I actually went back to Mexico and actually saw Mexico City through the eyes of my parents. And so, like, they were telling me, like, oh, that's where I went to school or, like, that's, a like, the church that we used to go to or, like, this is the road that I used to take to go visit your mom when we were dating and stuff like that. And so, like, reliving that through their perspective and actually seeing, like, where your parents come from. Because, like, you hear all these stories of, like, your parents' life, right? But because you're not close to that place or you're not close to your family – like you they're kind of just stories right and so like for me going back it was act, it it was actually conceptualized and like i saw everything that my parents referred to or like i saw the way of life that they always referred to like oh we used to go get water you know from the water truck like a mile down the road kind of thing right but i i relate to what she says because just being there and experiencing the holidays is a different experience like yeah your parents make the most of it here in the states and they try to teach you your culture but then you actually experience it in mexico and that's like something completely different what about you elsa i mean while i was listening to her interview I was thinking about how she's right. You can attempt to um, show your children what your culture is like within the U.S., but they're never going to get the full message until they're actually there reliving what you used to live. Um, I'm remembering a time when I was younger. One of my aunts tried to do like a posada here in the U.S. to show us what it's like. And I don't know, like it was it was a good effort, but whatever message she was trying to convey did not get through to me. It was a little confusing. But anyways, um, that this last December, I had the privilege to go um, to visit my family in Mexico. My father's family is, is from Mexico City, and I got to spend a month there. Um, and my dad has 13 siblings, so I got to – and they all live in the same area. So it's a town outside of Mexico City, and it's called La Perla. So my whole family lives there, and we were spoiled rotten. It was awesome. <laughs> um, we visited – uh, in time for the holidays, we got to experience uh, the posadas, and it was just breathtaking. There's no comparison to what it was like here versus there. Down the street, there are people who are, um, you know, marching. There's a parade going on at all hours of the day. Um, they had dancing there. It was an amazing experience. I wish I could go back. I will hopefully go back this year. So one thing before we move on from this topic that I'd like to touch a little bit on is this fact that our, our parents, yes, tried to instill their traditions uh, from their native countries to us, but sometimes it didn't quite work out right. Like Elsa said with the Mosada, the message kind of gets lost. And I think a big factor in that that we don't always acknowledge is American culture itself, right? Uh, our parents could have, you know, spend all day like, well, back home we did this and this and this, but then we turn on the TV and we'd see the American idea of Christmas or New Year's. And I was like, well, you know, TV is saying this versus what my parents are saying. So I think American culture had a lot to do with us not getting the full experience. And it wasn't until we get got away from American culture when we got to visit our parents' home countries that were like, oh, this is what they were trying to this show is, us. Yep. And this is what they were trying to instill in me and keep, right. Right? keep alive. Right. So this is a very good segue into our next topic. Uh, we're going to start uh, – this next clip we're going to hear from is from attorney uh, Jocelyn Cortez. And she talks about how we inherit nostalgia for our parents' culture and home countries, even if we may, may not necessarily ever live there. My mom – um, she, she, what's the main staple for us is the, um, gallina and salsa, or, um, it's a, like a roast chicken, mm -hmm. which is usually made for, um, Christmas or New Year's. And it's made in a, a very savory tomato sauce. And so you take the meat and you put it in some 
uh, like a short French bread. Mm-hmm. And you put some pieces of tomato and cucumber and radish and watercress. And so that's definitely a festive dish. So that's something that my mom made. Um, she can make pasteles, which are like uh, empanadas in mm-hmm. other countries filled with ground meat and some vegetables. But I think more than the food, my parents were big on memories. So we had a, I had a lot of um, information, perhaps because when I was a small child, I was the first of my cousins, too, to come from El Salvador. So I was, for a long time, probably the only child amongst a lot, a lot of immigrant adults. So I think I absorbed their... Um, their nostalgia and what they left and their stories. So more than food, I think I was nourished on, on, on that. I mean, I, I really like at the end what she says is that I absorbed this nostalgia with what was left in their stories and their food and stuff. I mean, I, I experienced that a lot growing up, right? Uh, especially because I was the only child for about six years before my little sister was born. So I would hear my mom's stories of, you know, what growing up with my grandfather was like and what, like, El Salvador was like. And so, for me at least, this nostalgia doesn't manifest more than when I watch soccer, right? Mm-hmm. Right? When I watch uh, El Tri play, all this nostalgia for these countries that I, I'm not technically from, but kind of expresses itself or manifests itself in me when I watch El Tri. Because when I'm watching El Tri, man, I am 100% Mexican. <laughs> like, it, I cry with them, I celebrate with them, and I get angry with them. Um, and that's how it manifests in me. What about you, Monta? Um, Yeah, like, same with you guys. Like, we inherit this nostalgia from our parents and, like, where they come from. And like I said, we hear all these stories of their childhood and, like, their, if like, if they moved here in their adult life and like all the things they went through and stuff like that but like for me it's always like oh you know like it's different in Mexico but I only know it's different in Mexico because of what my parents tell me right and it's kind of like this this idea right that like Mexico is home or like our parents country is like home home right like we may live here we might um be born here and have our entire lives here but like that's home right you don't feel at home until you go home that kind of stuff and then there's this idea that uh especially for children of immigrants no somos de aquí no somos de yeah we're not from here we're not from there and the reason being for that is, you know, we grew up hearing the stories and the nostalgia from our parents from Mexico. But like you mentioned earlier uh, with your family in Mexico City, they were quick to point out, no, you have an American accent. No, you act like an American. And then when you're here in the States, you know, we get that infamous question of where are you from? Right. Um, and so it's like and I think this is a very unique experience for children of immigrants that we're not from here and we're not from there. We live in in, the, in between, right? Like if we're Mexican-Americans, we live in that space between Mexican and American. The hyphen. The hyphen. We live in the hyphen. Um, and that is a very difficult topic. And there's something I personally struggled with uh, in my younger years of like, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm too brown to be an American, but I am too gringo to be a Mexican, right? And so it's a very difficult topic. to uh, hit. And so that goes into, you know, children of immigrants. Um, we not only inherit the nostalgia of these great, amazing things from our parents' home country, but we also ex- we inherit the trauma. Uh, and so before we dive into that a little more, we're going to hear from attorney Alex de Castro Verde uh, talking about how he has mixed feelings for Cuba because of his parents and what his parents went through uh, while they lived in, in, in Cuba. No, I have mixed feelings with that. Knowing that my dad fought in the Bay of Pigs, knowing that my dad devoted a big part of his life or almost his entire life towards, or in part, his entire life towards getting rid of Fidel and Raul Castro and having a free Cuba. I have mixed feelings in regards to, do I want to go now? It's still, the, the, the Castro, Raul Castro's got, he's still in charge. Still a, a, a totalitarian country. Uh, they still absolutely oppress political dissidents. There's no freedom there. Um, so on that one hand, I'd just rather wait for a few Cuba, for a free Cuba. On the other hand, I'm 46 years old and I've waited all these years. And, and I, at some point I would like to go. I'd like to see the country that my parents were born. So I'm torn. I go back and forth. If I go, I've tried to persuade my mom since my dad passed away. I'd like to go with my mom so she could 
be the historian. And, and I know she's not going to be around forever. So I try to persuade her, uh, perhaps it's best that we go and you can um, share your memories with me. But she feels strongly that she will not return until, until there's a free Cuba. She has zero interest or desire to go. She knows how much my dad sacrificed. And uh, she just couldn't live with herself to go and, 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 and be any part of uh, uh, rewarding through her dollars. The, the Cuban government that's in place right now. So this clip is very powerful because the Castro Verde's own father fought in the Bay of Pigs and, you know, fighting for a free, free Cuba, but there's this want, and you can hear it in his voice, like, I want to know where my parents grew up. Like, I want to see that history. And and, and he's on a timetable, and he knows it because, you know, he's uh, he's in his 40s, his mother is older, and he doesn't know how much time it is. But he, at the same time, has to respect that, you know, his mother doesn't want to go because of what his father did. And it's just like, wow, like, how do you how do you balance that? How do you live with that idea of like wanting to know where your parents live and and then also respecting your parents wishes because of what your father contributed to for the freedom of that country that unfortunately doesn't have its freedom. I mean, I, I experienced that a little bit myself when I went to El Salvador um, when I was th- I, I went when I was 13. I'd never been back since, uh, unfortunately, because the country is still facing turmoil uh, because of the Civil War, right? So the Civil War uh, in El Salvador started in about the 80s and ended in 92, 93, a little a couple of years before I was born. Uh, and then, as you see, I grew up hearing my mom's story, El Salvador, these beautiful places, but unfortunately, like, the Civil War ruined it. And then once the Civil War was settled, um, unfortunately, gang activity filled in that violence violent void that was left and, and and it hasn't that country hasn't been able to progress but i remember going and i saw the beautiful mountains the volcanoes that my mom spent uh telling me about i saw the like little markets and stuff but at the same time i saw the destruction that was still left behind and just to hear like the pain in my mom's voice of like i can't really show you el salvador that i grew up with because the civil war destroyed it it's no longer el salvador i grew up with is no longer here but i can show you what's left and and it's crazy because again i inherited all the great things about Salvador, but i also inherited that trauma there's this whole generation of salvadoreños uh my age who yeah we didn't live through the war we didn't go through the horrors of war but we might as well have because we've heard these stories so much we've heard the casualties that our families have suffered and now that i'm getting older i'm starting to realize that that first set of history I received was a censored version because my mom was sheltering me from the violence. And now that I'm older, I'm starting to hear more of like, no, our family actually suffered casualties. You get frustrated, but you don't know who to be mad at, right? You don't know, like, what do I do with this anger that I've inherited from my mother? Because anytime she talks about uh, El Salvador, she, she's a, it's a beautiful country, but then you can hear the anger in her voice of, it got ruined. It got destroyed because of the war. And then uh, we couldn't rebuild because then the Mata came in. We can't rebuild. Our country is still not what it used to be when I was a child. And I can't show you El Salvador I grew up in. And, I mean, I I, I feel that when uh, Alex is, goes, you know, my mom doesn't want to go back until there's a free Cuba. But Yeah. And then later on, we asked him, what does that entail? And he just said, like, no Castro's, no communism, no socialism. And so it was one of those things that, you know, we have the luxury of, like, we've been to our parents' country. He's 46 years old, and he's never been to Cuba because of the same reason, because his family refuses to go until, you know, until there's freedom in Cuba. And so, like, he's in a special spot because he has all this trauma, he has all this nostalgia, but he has never even stepped foot in that country, right? But he's, like, 100% Cuban-American, right? Like, he always says it, like, I'm Cuban, like, my family's Cuban, right? Right. He's living in that, again, he's living in in that uh, hyphen. He's Cuban-American, but he's living in that hyphen. He's not Cuban because he's never set foot on the island, but he's not also completely American because he has this nostalgia for Cuba. Elsa, any thoughts on this? Yeah, um... I realized that throughout this whole time that I've been referencing that trip to Mexico City, um, I was talking about it when, in you know, just describing the happy moments. But yeah, it was difficult even before I, I left 
um, back when I was still in, in the U.S. getting ready to go, I was kind of a little apprehensive because I'm I'm visiting a lot of hardships. This is where my father had to experience um, things like poverty. He told me stories about, I mean, this is all really hard stuff to talk about, but there's poverty, there's, there's child abuse, there's... Um, there's that whole machismo thing, just problems that he's only mentioned in passing because I know it's hard for him to talk about it. because I love my father so much having to go and visit, um, the places where he had to overcome these issues, have to talk to some of the people who had part in these issues. I was obviously <laughs> conflicted. Um, but yeah, when I went there, I felt that sense of what we've been talking about this, this inherited trauma weighing down on me. I'm upset. I'm, I didn't live it personally, but I've lived through, uh, the aftermath, the aftermath, because my father is a changed person because of the things that happened to him. Now he's my father and yeah, it affects you. Yeah. It affects you too. It's tough. It affects us. And it's something that, um, is not just, I mean, like through this project, we've been hearing so many stories that are similar to, similar to yours, Lauren, similar to mine, where we, um, it's like this, we're inheriting PTSD almost. Right. But yeah. Okay. So uh, our last clip is a very interesting topic and something I really want to get into. It's this idea of how we adopt our American culture. Sure, we've been discussing how Latinos, first generations, we live in this hyphen. Uh, and we've been talking a lot about that first part of the hyphen, right? The Mexican, the Salvadorian, the Cuban part. But now we got to look into the other side of that hyphen, the American side, right? And how do we, as uh, children of immigrants and first-generation people, balance uh, our Latinidad within our American uh, heritage? All right, so let's hear from former UNOV gender, queer, and Latinx studies professor Anita Tijerina Riovilla. Talk about Latinx people adapting American culture while also refusing to let go of our own identity. It kind of piqued my, my interest when you um, you mentioned al cultura, right? When we adopt American uh, cult- practices into our culture. Mm-hmm. But I kind of want to get your perspective on the criticism that we get. Because, right, we, we adopt them, but we don't keep them how they're traditional. We change them. <laughs> right? So I'm thinking, like, the American dream is to own a car. Mm-hmm. We took the car and we invented the low ride. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We take, um, you know, we take American food, like el hot dog, mm-hmm. but the chamo salsa. Bacon. But we get criticized for it because mm-hmm. we're, we take, so I kind of just want to get your perspective on why do we criticize or, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, I think that that's the, what I was basically referring to when I said that, um, Latinos, Latinx folk, um, have been kind of like a disappointment to the um, the American assimilation product, right? Because they wanted us to be like Italian folk or like, you know, um, um, I don't know, Irish folk who maybe they had some practices, maybe they still liked spaghetti, but they became Americans, right? And... Um, and that was basically what all these white folk were being told. Like, if you want to be a real American, you can't be an Irish American. You can't be a German American. You can't be even a Jewish American. Like, you have to be an American. And some white folk have resisted that, but most of them didn't. Most of them are very proud and committed to that because to be a, quote, good American, a socially constructed good American, you have to reject your ethnic, you know, cultural practices. Um, and so they, there are, but there are always for them, they compartmentalize it too. You might have like an Irish festival. This is the one time you get to, you know, be, remember that you have Irish ancestry. Um, but overwhelmingly, it can't be your primary identity. Right. So we have left like the juiciest one for last. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in this one. Um, I'd like to start by... You know, this idea that we get criticized for not being good immigrants by not assimilating, right? Um, the examples that I asked uh, in the question or in the clip that you heard was like the lowrider, right? Uh, it's the American dream to own a car, but it has to stay stock. Don't don't you dare put rims on it. Don't you dare lower it. Don't you dare pinstripe it because then it gets criminalized, 
right? There's a history uh, in our cities of lowriders being criminalized. You know, you know, they would measure your uh, the body of your car, and it had to be above a certain height, or you know what, your car is illegal. You can't ride it. Um, this idea of of us taking American foods and changing them, they just can't be, you know, it can't just be a hot dog. No, that's a Tex-Mex hot dog that you're eating, right? They had to throw a label on it. And so, I mean, I, this is a very difficult thing where we're always balancing. I want to be American, but I want to have my Latinidad. I don't want to give up my Latinidad and we shouldn't have to. Yeah, and how she talks about how... To be a good American, being ethnic can't be your primary identity. You have to be American, and then you can remember, oh, I'm also Latina, I'm also Irish, I'm also Jewish, that kind of stuff, right? So this idea that your primary identity has to be American or you're not a good American. And so she talks about all of this, and it goes back to the 4th of July, how we started the episode, Mm -hmm. how, you know, this 4th of July, I was really conflicted. Right. I'm really conflicted on how I feel about the 4th of July. Like, like you said, did I want to celebrate it? Not really. I just wanted to watch fireworks. I wasn't proud of being American yesterday. It was just kind of like uh, another like 4th of July. Right. But the only times that I'm actually excited for like to be American is when something good happens in legislature or when something, you know, good happens because the community went out and did something. Or, you know, when the women's soccer team gets to the final of the World Cup. Hey, what's up? You know, like that kind of stuff makes me feel American. But it's not like she says, like, it's not my primary identity before I say I'm American. If I ever say I'm American, I'm say I'm Latina. My parents are Mexican, that kind of stuff. Right. Well, mm-hmm. it's funny because even then, like even when we want to say we're American, they don't let us. Yeah. Right. Going back to that infamous question of like where you're from, if you answer I'm from here, do we always get the no? But really, where are you from? Where are you from? From where are you and, from? From and like they mean like where's your family from? Like where did you guys immigrate from? Right. So there's mm-hmm. there's almost no winning. Right. Mm-hmm. We like okay, you're being too ethnic to be American. Fine. All right, mm-hmm. I'll be American. But then we get the. No, you're not from here, though. Where are you, where are you from? And it's like, okay, what do you want from me? Yeah. Do you want me to tell you I'm Mexican? Okay, if that's what you want, fine, but let me be Mexican. Do you want me to be American? Fine, I'll be American, but don't ask me. No, where are you from from? Right? Yeah, or like, a, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I think a lot of people don't realize just how um, how different the answers will be when we actually give them like the where we're from because depending on the person you're talking to you could get a oh that's cool or you could get someone who's a little bit more like standoffish and not happy with your answer so it's also this thing where it's like I'm putting myself out there not just feeling uncomfortable but potentially feeling like unsafe like yeah where, I've had where those is situations this gonna go as well and I know that my parents have had those situations more so them than than I because because racism and whatever but yeah so I don't know. We get so much flack on it. It is a catch-22. Um, and it's also, it sucks that we have to feel so defensive because yeah. we were forced to feel that way. And she talked about that. Like, you know, we make white people uncomfortable, right? And, and pointing things out like this is having to face American history, like having to face those wounds head on. And I feel like that's right now, like, the whole reason why there's so much turmoil in the United States because... There's people that are like, okay, it's time to address the wound, right? It's time to actually clean it up and make sure that it heals, right? And a lot of people do not want to do that because it'll, like, it'll be accepting that this country isn't the perfect America that they always celebrate on 4th of July. It would mean admitting guilt. Yeah, Yeah. white guilt. But then also, this is nothing new. I hate that we're having this discussion, like, okay, it's 2019. We've been having this discussion for not just a decade, but for like hundreds centuries, of years. centuries, yes. centuries. Um, so the fact that some people are still coming up to us expecting some like, I don't know, some one on one course on why racism is bad. It's like, no, I, I expect more of y'all, especially now that the Internet exists, especially now that no, Las like, Vegas is so diverse. If any, like if you pay attention in U.S. history class, you should be angry. Mm, but <laughs> even then, U.S. history class is not always like super. Yeah. And honest. like the thing is, like, it's not just against Latinos. It's against every minority Mm -hmm. in the United States. And she addresses Mm -hmm. that, right? Anita does a great job of addressing that. Like, it's not just like, oh, we're victims of this. Like, no, all minorities have been discriminated and, you know, preyed upon by the institution that is government. 
right? And so, like, we see it more and more that, like, now because we have cell phones, because, you know, we have access to technology and social media, these things are more blunt, Mm -hmm. right? These discriminations, these instances of abuse of power are more blunt and they're in your face. And that's when people get uncomfortable and don't want to address it. I wanted to comment on what she said, because when I I heard this, I was just blown away. I mean, it was so powerful. And you're right, Monse, this does bring us back to um, yesterday, it being the 4th of July and feeling it's hard feeling pride for a country who's like enjoying the fruits of today, but without acknowledging uh, all the stuff that happened yesterday and before that. But um, yeah, when we're talking about loving our country and being patriotic, my approach has always been that because I love it so much, I'm so critical of it. I'm glad that, you know, she's doing this work through um, educating others. And because it's such a systematic issue, I feel like that's why we have awesome elementary school teachers who need to, like, talk about race in the classroom because to dismantle, uh, you know, things like institutionalized racism, we do have to be systematic. We have to talk to kids while they're young, talk to them truthfully, and then move forward. Keep that conversation going as as they're going through their education, which is why we need more teachers of color. Everywhere. Right. And so this is a couple more things I want to touch on before we wrap this episode up. This is my last question for you guys. You know, we've been discussing this idea of um, living in the hyphen between Mexican and American, Cuban, American, what have you. How do you personally live in that hyphen, right? And and I'll start off by saying myself, this was something I struggled with growing up, like being feeling like I'm not from here, I'm not from there. How do I live in this space? And as I got an older, I realized that, you know what? There is no roadmap. There is no guide of how to be American. And so that – and that seems devastating at first. They're like, dang, I have to figure this out by myself. And then it goes, wait, that means I can do whatever I want with it. <laughs> so that to me was taking the best of American culture and taking the best of Salvadorian culture and taking the best of Mexican culture and blending it all together into this identity that I am like happy with, right? And so I'm going to throw that question out to you. I'll start off with you. Monse, how do you feel like you've personally found a way to live in that hyphen? Um, I feel like the same methods as with you, um, taking the best of both cultures and adapting them and making them my own. Another one, at least for me, is like my name. Any setting, it has to be Monse. Like it can't be like my full name. It can't be like a white uh, Americanized Monse, (laughs) right? It has to be Monse. Like like at least in the pronunciation of my name, it has to be Monse. And that's how I uh, use that identity or create my own identity like okay I can be in any kind of situation but Monse always stays and like for me like that's it yeah um I remember this used to be a big issue with me when I was when I was younger um you know went from Colorado where I was the Mexican kid to hear everyone's Mexican but even then it was like I don't have so as much in common as you would think And then that led into, because I'm so self-critical, that led into a lot of um, feelings of guilt. And that word, like, whitewashing was, oh, God, I hated it because I thought, like, oh, my God, I'm so whitewashed. I'm not representing my culture. I'm letting my parents down. Like, it was was a lot for um, for a teenager. But I experienced that throughout most of my life. And, yeah, it manifests itself in a lot of ways, feeling like you need to out, like, almost like out Mexican some in some situations, but out American in others. There is a lot of, um, it, it is a comfort to know that now that everyone is a little bit more aware of the issues that we're facing, I can put like, let my guard down. I don't have to worry about outperforming anyone. I can just live authentically like the things I do. Um, so yeah, Mexican food, I, is it like the biggest one for me, but and also with American stuff, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think if there's anything especially American that I like. I think at this point, I just like what I like. Um, but I do try to um, highlight my Mexican heritage because, you know, I'm the, a new generation and I want to preserve that. All right. Well, uh, guys, this was uh, this was a great conversation. I loved it. Uh, there was so much to unpack. Listeners, I'd like to thank you guys for joining in on this conversation. Any last thoughts? Um, just overall, like our heritage is our heritage and we need to keep it alive. Right. Elsa? Just live authentically and be happy that we have all this cool stuff on top of 
just being from the U.S. Yeah, and you know what, guys? I, I can't add anything else to that. Um, so all I'm going to say is gracias for listening. Uh, this has been Latinx Voices Unveiled. Thank you for listening to Latinx Voices Unveiled series. Each episode features smaller parts of larger interviews with community members. These interviews were conducted by research assistants at the Oral History Research Center. To hear these interviews in full, contact UNLV Special Collections and Archives at 702-895-2234. Special thanks to Yoni Kessler for our theme music and to performing musicians Ricardo Arana, Tassos Peltekis, Marshall Peterson, and Spencer Pfeiffer. Audio engineering by Ron George. Production engineering by Kevin Kroll. This podcast is a production of KUNV Radio and the UNLV Rebel Media Group. <laughs>